know that you are an amazing person who loves each one of us deeply. You've expressed that and demonstrated that to us by coming to earth, dying on the cross for our sins. And Lord, you want us not only to experience your forgiveness, but you want us to understand the kind of relationship that will transform our lives from being uh, beaten down, distraught, distressed, lonely, apprehensive, frustrated, angry, embittered. Lord, I just pray today that you will speak into our innermost being, that we'll hear your voice, we'll understand the depths of your love, and Father, we will leave this place affirmed in that love, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. After months at sea, it finally found his land legs. Voyage had proved to be a nightmare, worse than he could have ever imagined. As a matter of fact, there was so much sickness on the voyage and so much death, which also included the death of his parents. As a child arriving in the new promised land, it was a stranger unfamiliar with both language and customs. Fear struck a chord in his innermost being. He was now alone with no place to go and no one to turn to. What was he going to do? How was he going to survive? And as he walked the streets of New York City, he realized he was not alone in his plight. Others aboard his ship and many others who had come to seek refuge in the United States were suffering a similar fate. He noticed that there were so many children sleeping in the alleys, huddled for warmth in boxes or metal drums. To survive, many of the boys stole and others caught rats to eat or they would rummage through garbage cans. He noticed girls working as petty thieves for prostitutes, slipping their tiny hands through camouflage opening in walls, lifting a watch or a wallet from a preoccupied customer. Immigrants were now flooding New York City during this early part of the 1800s, and no one had the money, the time, or the aptitude to look after so many homeless, parentless children. That is, except a young minister of the gospel, Charles Brace, 26 years old. He was horrified by what he was witnessing around him. And so he organized a very unique solution. He knew that out west there were many farmers, which at that time was what people, the primary industry of the U.S., were looking for people to help them. And so he created this idea of the orphan train. The idea was simple. Pack a whole bunch of kids on a train, send them out west, and anyone could claim a son or a daughter as they came from town to town. By the time the last orphan train steamed west in 1929, over 100,000 children had found new homes and new lives. That's an amazing story, isn't it? Many found wonderful homes. Some were loved. Of course, there are probably some that found not-so-wonderful homes, But two of the orphans from the train became governors. One served as a U.S. congressman and one a Supreme Court justice. So good came out of a very painful and difficult situation. Now, most of us do not know what that would be like to come to a strange country, to not know the language, to be a child, and to have no one to turn to and no place to go. That would be an awful experience. But I do believe we could identify with that feeling of being orphaned or that feeling 
that we have been abandoned or rejected or we've been alone. Probably some of the most significant and powerful moments in our lives occur when love has been extended to us without any sort of you know, feeling on our part that we did anything to facilitate it or create it. We felt not even deserving of it. How many know the power of love is an incredible force? A person showing their care and concern because of who they are can impact the lives of many other people. Now, I can remember back when I was in high school, my parents uh, had marriage problems. They had had most of their marriage. Eventually, their lives went two separate directions. And in my last year of high school, I was on my own, basically trying to help my mother with my three other siblings. And that following year, when I started university, my mother had left with my two youngest brothers. My sister went to live with another family, and my dad was living in a different country. So there I was, alone. During the next few years, proved to be some very painful, lonely, difficult years in my life, but which, as I look back now, were catalytic. They were the means that God used to bring me to faith in Christ. And one of the most beautiful things that happened was I became part of a local church. I became part of a church family, and the church wasn't quite as large as ours, but I got to know the people, and the one person who really impacted my life was the pastor. The pastor was, you know, an older guy, very loving man, very uh, godly, prayerful, and a great Bible teacher. And he took a number of us young people under his wing and began to pour his life into us. And I'm going to say something that if it was not for that kind of uh, focus and love, I don't think I'd be a pastor today. So, you know, when when I get to heaven, obviously it'll be a great day of reunion. As a matter of fact, my pastor died quite young. He was only 54 when he passed away. And I was just graduating from Bible college. And uh, I know that he wanted me to come and serve with him. And it was a very emotional day when I went to his funeral and his youngest daughter came up to me and she said to me, I know that today is as much of a loss for you as it is for me. That's how close you can become with other believers. The Apostle Paul, in writing one of the most moving and profound letters uh, and expressing what you and I possess in our relationship with Christ is found in the book of Ephesians. That's the book we're going to turn to this morning. And I believe that some of the most profound theological truths are found as well in this book. Most scholars believe that this letter was not necessarily written to a specific city, though most agree that Ephesus was one of the cities that they received this letter. Ephesus is a community in what we would know today as Turkey. Now, there was a number of uh, most of the New Testament churches were actually started in the country of Turkey. So even though you go there today and there's not a lot of Christian churches there, it's really amazing. A number of years ago, we got to travel in Turkey, and I got to go to some of these locations where some of these churches were. It's very interesting. I even was at Ephesus. Ephesus uh, was a significant community of that day, one of the major uh, cities in the Roman Empire, probably the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. This letter that Paul wrote was meant to be a circular letter, which meant that it would be read in a congregation, it would be read in another house church, it would be read in another house church. Eventually it would find its way to other communities. And so the truths that are found in this book are not necessarily addressing specific issues. It was more of a general letter of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Now, many of our struggles in life are caused by not knowing our identity in Christ. In other words, we don't fully understand what Jesus came to do and how it should impact our lives. And I found out over the years, a lot of Christians, even though they've been Christians for a long time, still don't get what Jesus did for them. And this morning, I want to just share a very simple message to explain to you some of these powerful truths that I think once you get them, will forever change the course of your life. It will change who you are as a person. It will remove a lot of the insecurities and the brokenness in your life and move you forward in a powerful way. So I'm praying this is going to be life-changing. I'm going to just share a few messages along this theme. You know, you know, as I said, many of our struggles in this life are, are not known because we, we just don't understand who Jesus is in relationship to what he's accomplished for us. And we fail to grasp the significance of truly being a child of God and the blessings he has for us. So, so we're going to look here uh, at how powerful, number one, what Jesus came to do. Because I think we have to also understand the power that we've been set free from. As a matter of fact, sin... Our sin, or the sin that has been done to us, uh, strips us of our sense of humanity. It strips us of our dignity and of our worth and of our value. It has a way of abusing, victimizing, breaking, and embittering lives. And I can say that I've been a pastor for so long. I've seen so many lives, you know, and Mark, he's nodding his head because, you know, he and I listen to a lot of stories and some of them want to make you cry. Some of them want to make you upset and angry at the kind of ways that people have been used and abused and the hurt and pain that's in so many people's lives. So how do we get past all of that stuff? And that's what I want to focus on a little bit here uh, today. Do you know sin in a very real sense leaves us struggling alone? We always feel isolated. Sin has a way of making us feel that way. We're the only ones going through this thing. But the reality is we're all going through it. And we need to understand that no one is alone on this journey. I was reading a number of years ago this text of scripture and it really spoke to me. It, it was found in Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 8. It says, as no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. Well, that's an interesting statement. How many know you don't release people from battle unless they've been killed or wounded? You know, you're keeping them fighting. But it says wickedness in the same way will not release those who practice it. There's, a, there's something about sin that's addictive in nature. It traps us. And even though we want to be free, we just don't seem to be able to get free. So it takes a power greater than ourselves to free us from the power of sin. And that's the power of God's grace. And we're going to talk a bit about that as well this morning. The thing that I notice is that God has that power to deliver us from our sin. And secondly, he has the power to help us live in freedom and experience all that God intends for our lives. You know, it would be interesting to do... I, I've done this sometimes, you know, you just go around, talk to people, and it's fun sometimes to talk to people who are not Christians and ask them, what are you living for? Like, what, what makes you tick? What is it that you're really searching after? What is it that you're pursuing? And you're going to get all kinds of interesting answers, but, you know, I'll give you some summaries of some of the things that people will say. You know, people are going to say, I'm living to enjoy myself. You know, or they may not say it that way, but that's really what's motivating their lives. I'm trying to be 
happy. I'm trying to find happiness. I'm trying to experience uh, maybe security. I'm trying to experience uh, this idea of I'm loved for who I am, right? Aren't people longing for these kinds of things? And even in our own lives, we could all say, yes, I can assent to that. You know, how many here would say, no, I don't want to be loved by anybody? I mean, nobody's going to volunteer for that, you know? Nobody wants to be that lonely. Everybody wants to be loved for just who they are. But the only person that can actually do that perfectly is God himself. He's the only one that can love each of us for who we are perfectly. You know, to the child of God, we should be living for Christ. For the child of God, we should be saying, you know, I found real purpose and meaning when I gave my life to Christ, and now I'm moving in that direction because when I pursue that direction, all these other things are being fulfilled in my life. Isn't that amazing? So when we make these other things the goal, we rarely hit them. When we make Christ the goal, all the other things that we need are now being realized in our life. John Stott says this, Paul's description of his readers here in the beginning verses of Ephesians chapter 1 is very comprehensive. First of all, in the NIV here it says he talks about to God's holy people. Well, some translations say to the saints. The point is, it's the same Greek word, okay? Holy ones and saints is the same word. So, however the translation states it, here's what we need to know. We belong to God. To be a saint means that you have been set apart and belong to God. And these are believers because they have trusted in Christ and have literally two homes. And they reside equally in Christ and in their earthly residence. And sometimes that creates a little problem for us to find that striking balance. But it doesn't mean that because I'm a Christian I'll not have difficulties. But many of our spiritual troubles arise from our failure to remember that we're citizens of two kingdoms. You know, we tend to either pursue Christ and withdraw from society. A lot of people do that. You know, we almost become mystical or we become monastic. We want to withdraw from all of life. We, we become, you know, quote unquote, super spiritual. But if we're really spiritual, we're going to have a balanced life and we're going to be able to be effective in the world in which we're living. The other extreme is we become so preoccupied with this life, this world, and you know, all the things that are challenging us that we forget that we're in Christ. So somehow God wants us to get to that place where I recognize I'm a Christian, I'm in Christ, I'm not trying to run away from anything, I'm not trying to have a form of escapism. And I think a lot of our activities are actually escapism. You know, they're forms to escape the current reality. No, I think when we have Christ at the center, we can face our realities in the strength of God's grace and love, so that you and I become part of the solution to many of the problems that our society is experiencing today. So I want to focus our attention today on God's amazing, gracious work in our lives and how that is going to play out so that you and I move to this middle ground where we are in Christ and we're in society, and we're having a positive impact in society. So let's take a look at the two concepts we need to understand in order to fully appreciate God's grace towards us. And grace is God's favor, even though we don't deserve it. And it's seen, first of all, in the past blessing of election. That's an interesting term. Now, 
Election has caused a lot of grief in the church, this term. You know, it's a divine revelation. It's not based on human ingenuity. Can I just say that John Calvin did not come up with the idea of election? So some of you, if you've studied a little bit theology, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Everyone, you know, if you're a Calvinist, you just, God chose you, elected you, that's it. You had nothing to do with it. And then you have another group on the other side that say, no, that's not quite the way it works, you know. But we need to understand it's God's revelation. It wasn't even Augustine that came up with this before Calvin. Actually, this is a biblical concept. And that's why we need to understand it in a biblical way. And so what do we need to know? Well, first of all, God... chooses people. How many know God chooses people? You cannot read the Bible and say God did not choose Abraham. You know, remember, the Bible says that God appeared, the God of glory appeared to Abraham while he was living in the city of Ur, of the Chaldees. Now, why didn't God appear to, you know, Nahor or Lot or some other person? You know, why did God appear to Abraham? See, now Abraham could walk around and go, man, I'm special. God appeared to me, nobody else. And that's what happens sometimes when we, f- we get this idea that God's picking us, that we could feel like, well, I'm, I must be a better person than everybody else. But Abraham did not feel that way. See, God is choosing Abraham because God wants to do something in and through Abraham's life. That God chooses us because he has a purpose in mind for our lives. And we're going to see that when God chose Israel, it wasn't because Israel was the biggest nation. Matter of fact, God says you were the least. It wasn't because they were so brilliant. No, it was because you ne- they needed God and God made a decision to choose them. And then God said this, I'm choosing you so that you will be my witnesses. I'm choosing you so that you will reach out to all the other nations on the earth and reveal who I am as Yahweh, the God of the creation, the God of redemption. I'm revealing myself through you for the sake of others. And we need to understand that when God chooses us, it's not because he thinks you're so good looking or you're so bright or smart or anything else. There's none of those reasons. God is choosing you for a purpose. Put that in your mind. So we're not just sitting down here going, oh, man, I'm so awesome. God's picking me. You know, I'm entitled. No, it's not. That's not the concept at all. The doctrine of election runs throughout the whole Bible. Israel was chosen not for any merit, but to be the means of fulfilling God's eternal purpose. In the New Testament, the principle of election is confirmed, but there's no longer a national limitation. In other words, God now isn't just choosing people because they have a Jewish background. God is choosing people of all nations. Isn't that beautiful? So he's opened it up. This doctrine of election or predestination is not raised as a subject of controversy or speculation. It is not set in opposition to the self-evident fact of human free will. It involves a paradox that the New Testament does not seek to resolve and and that our finite minds cannot fathom. We don't have infinite minds. Typo. Okay. So what is he saying? He's basically saying there's a tension in the Bible, a paradox, you know, two contrasting ideas, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And somehow these are playing off against each other. And we struggle with it because we're limited in our thinking. Uh, See, Paul emphasizes, the Apostle Paul, both the sovereign purposes of God and our human free will. Arthur Patsia says this, Unfortunately, the Christian church has become polarized into theological, theological camps over this teaching. 
Some, namely the Calvinists, have placed all the emphasis upon the sovereign grace of God and the manners of salvation. Others, namely the Arminianists, have emphasized human freedom in the salvation process. Since the Bible does not attempt to harmonize this apparent paradox, it continues to remain one of the most divisive and speculative mysteries of the Christian faith. You know what I've noticed as I've gotten older? I'm noticing in myself, I'm, I'm more content to live with mystery. You know, the more I know, the less I know. That's what I've discovered. There's just so much more to know. And then all of a sudden, there's a lot of stuff I don't understand and I don't know, and it's beyond my comprehension, and I'm okay with it. I can rest and trust, hey, God knows this stuff. As a matter of fact, it was Scott uh, Fitzgerald, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. <laughs> um, you know, I read that definition in a little different way. The test of genius, the, you, know, you know when somebody's a, a brilliant person is when they can live with paradox. And I thought to myself, isn't that kind of like God? He's creating these paradoxes. God is actually brilliant. And you and I look at this and we go, I don't get the Trinity. I don't get, you know, this idea of the sovereignty, the election of God, how this all works. How does God choose me? And yet I have a free will in this. I haven't been able to figure that all out. But I do want to go where the Bible goes, and it talks about both this idea of election and this idea of human free will. So who we are basically begins to determine what we're going to become. You know, and that's true. If you, you have a, a child being born, he has a certain DNA, you know, the DNA is going to determine what's going to be the outcome of this child. It's going to have an impact on their life. Whether they're going to have blue eyes, green eyes, brown eyes, you know what I mean? That kind of stuff. DNA does that. You know, those who object and say that if God chose, chooses us, then it doesn't matter how we live because, hey, God's already picked me. I can live any way I want. And I'm going, no, that's not the point. Look at what it says in Scripture here. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Let's look at it. It says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now, before God even made the world, God had determined to create humanity. And this is going to be mind-boggling. God decided before you were born to bring you into this world, even before he created the world. How many God's amazing? Isn't that, isn't that incredible? So, you know, some of us go, oh, that was just an accident. <laughs> Not in God's economy. It doesn't matter on the human side how we were designed and created and all the rest of it. On the divine side, God says, no, I decided to have you here. You know, now all of our backgrounds are different. All of our stories of origin are different. But God is the one that determined it. He created it. And it says he did this before the creation of the world. And he did it for a purpose. It says to be holy and blameless in his sight. In other words, God says, I'm choosing you for this purpose. In other words, I'm choosing people to be holy. I'm going to design them. I'm going to create them. And I'm going to design them to be holy, to belong to me, to be separated for my purposes. That's what God is doing. Francis Falk says, election is not simply to salvation, but to holiness of life. So God is saving us, not just so that we can walk around going, hey, I got eternal life. No, no, God's saying, I'm saving you so that you can live a type of, a certain type of life. Okay. What am I saying? With privilege comes responsibility. And how many know that's true? You know, it's really interesting. Young people, adolescents, this is when you know you're in the state of, state of adolescence. And I'm not talking about age now. I can just tell what adolescence looks like. 
Adolescents want privilege and no responsibility. Getting quiet in here. You know? And I always tell young people, I said, listen, you know what? Your parents, if they're wise, want to give you all the, re- all the privilege that they can. But there is, for every privilege, there's a corresponding responsibility. And if you only had privileges in life and no responsibility, you would never mature and grow up. It's true. He goes on to say here, the ideal and goal of the Christian life, therefore, is perfect holiness and expressed in its positive aspect as dedication of life and negatively as freedom from every fault. So there's a positive and a negative side. The positive side is I'm living for God. The negative side is I'm free from all the things that once addicted and entrapped me by by the power of sin. I'm free from those things, so I'm free to serve God. So it's not this, I'm free from sin. No, I'm free to serve God. See, the two focuses there. And that's what we need to understand, that we're free to serve God. Then we rightly understand that election is a stimulus to humility and not a ground for boasting. In other words, hey, you know what? I didn't do this. God did this. He picked me. I'm on his team And God is the one that's done this work of grace in my heart. And God's the one that's helping me be transformed and changed. And so, and then I like what John Stott says, for holiness is the very purpose of election. So ultimately, the only evidence of election is a holy life. So that really negates a lot of people who say, well, I'm a Christian. It doesn't matter how I live. I'm going, no, 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 no. If you're really a Christian, you'll live the right kind of a life. It's the outcome of having this relationship with God. You will be changed. You can't help yourself. You're going to be moving in that direction. Now, I realize that, you know, we, and we'll talk about this, that God gives us a new nature, and we'll talk about how that all fits in. But here's uh, what we need to understand. We have to understand that salvation is God's gift to us. It's not something we earn. And And there is no ground for boasting, but it's not based on man's righteous works. Rather, good works flow from God's work within us and through us. It begins with what he has done for us and then continues by what he does through our lives. So in other words, good works is the natural outcome of a changed life. It just flows out of that. Now, Jesus says something very interesting in the upper room. And I think this is a very fascinating text because when I look at the story of the disciples, here's what I notice. You know, they're following John the Baptist. Then John the Baptist goes, well, there's the Messiah. There's the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Then they drop John the Baptist and go after Jesus. They follow him, right? It makes it look like when I'm reading the story that they're picking Jesus, okay? But that's not what Jesus says because later on, we have the story of Jesus coming along and they're fishing and Jesus says, come, follow me. Remember that? So even though they inquired, they saw it, they tried to figure out who he is, he's the one that called them. He says here in John fifteen sixteen, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and do what? Bear fruit. Now, I grew up I was born on the coast, but I lived for a number of years in small rural Saskatchewan in little towns. And I still remember one of the things that would happen in these small little towns is that everybody would come out for a baseball game, and you'd have, you know, 15-year-olds and, you know, 7-year-olds, 
Okay, so we're all showing up for the baseball game. And everybody divides up. You know, you're all standing there. We're going to build a game. We're going to have teams. And you select two people. And usually the older kids were the captains, right? Because they were, number one, older, smarter, tougher. Nobody's going to argue with them. And they've played the game longer and they're better at it. And everybody, remember, if some of you ever went through this experience, you know what I'm talking about. And so they start picking people. And they're always trying to pick people who are going to help their team win and not be a liability to that team, right? And when you're really little, you know, you're usually standing there and then they're trying to figure out who doesn't want which person because they're going to be the greatest liability. Some of you understand what I'm talking about, right? So they're picking teams. But I want you to know that God picked us on his team. He chose us. But he chose us for a reason. It's not just so that you and I can say, well, I'm on God's team. How many know it would be pretty bad if all we did was sit at the dugout and eat sunflower seeds? You know, that's not why God picked you. He, he's picking us for a purpose. It's just like the same thing. The kids are picking players so that they can play the game of baseball and hopefully help their team advance, right? And that's the same idea. God is picking us for a purpose. He has something in mind. So the fact that you have become a child of God suggests to me that God has some reason for choosing you that he wants you to, you know, live this, ex- this expression out in your life. Then he goes on to say, he, want, he says, I chose you so you could bear fruit, fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now here's where we can learn a lot about prayer. Do you know, once you and I understand that I'm picked by God, and number two, I understand that there's a purpose for God picking me, and that I'm playing on his team, then I can ask the Father for all the things that will help the team go forward. You see, I'm not just praying for things, you know, that have nothing to do with what God's purposes are for my life. But the moment I get up in the morning and I'm thinking about this, and, and even look at the Lord's Prayer for a minute. You know, he, he talks about, Father, who, you're in heaven. You know, I hallow your name. I'm, I'm setting it apart as being sacred and holy. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. He's basically praying. He's teaching us to pray, God, I'm on your page. I want to see your kingdom advance. And here's some of the things that I think I need to see your kingdom advance. And God goes, yeah, I can see that. And it is what I want. And therefore, you've got it. You see, we think we read these texts, whatever I ask in the name of the Father, he's going to give it to you. I think it's conditioned upon the fact that we're playing the game. We're in the mind of God. We're actually trying to do the will of God. We're trying to advance the kingdom of God. When we pray according to those things, we can have an assurance that God, who's as interested in that as we are, is now going to do those things. That changes my frame of reference a little bit for prayer. But let me move on to the second concept here. The first is seen in the past blessing of election. God's picked me. He's put me on his team. Number two, it's seen in the present blessing of adoption. Now, when you and I think of adoption, we're thinking little babies or little people or children being adopted into families. But in the Greco-Roman world, they usually adopted full-grown children. Full-grown people, actually. 
You see, what normally happened was you would have someone who had rise to prominence in the community. Maybe their children had died or maybe they had no children. And now they had this huge estate and all of these slaves working for them. And now they were about ready to, you know, prepare for their own death. And they wanted their memory to be remembered. And so they wanted to adopt someone they could put their name on them so that they could carry on their estate. And so a lot of these adoptions in the Roman world were to full-grown men. Isn't that amazing? You know, Caesar, Julius Caesar actually adopted Octavian Augustus. He adopted him. You see, that's what I'm talking about. And he wasn't a little boy. He adopted him because he wanted him to have what he had worked so hard to uh, achieve and so that his name, Caesar, would be remembered. So there's a privilege in being adopted rather than struggling on our own as an orphan. And I really believe that a lot of us in the Christian life, we have developed a kind of an orphan mentality. We're kind of like trying to do our own thing. We're kind of somewhat disconnected with God rather than understanding we're part of the family. And we're under God and we understand that there's a purpose for us being here and we're focusing and flowing with him. So in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, he explains what this is about. He says, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. In other words, to have this, this position of authority in his kingdom. You can be a daughter. This is gender neutral, okay? Through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Warren Worsby says it this way, you do not get into God's family by adoption. How many know that's true? You're not getting into God's family by adoption. You get into his family by regeneration, the new birth. See, when you open your heart, give your life to Christ, God does something supernatural inside of you. He changes your nature. Because before we had a sin nature, and that was it, and we were being defeated. But then when we become a Christian, God gives us his nature. And now we have two natures. We have an old nature and a new nature. And so that's what's going on in the book of Romans. He's telling us there that you and I need to choose what we're going to do. And the new nature is telling us to obey God and do what's right. And the old nature is just saying, do your own thing. And whenever we just succumb to the temptation of the old nature, we go back into bondage. Because sin only leads us into bondage. But when we yield to the new nature, we begin become obedient to God and it begins to change the trajectory of our lives and we begin to live a very purpose-filled life. Worsby goes on. Adoption is the act of God by which he gives his born ones an adult standing in the family. You're not just in the family. No, you've got an adult standing in the family. Now, why does he do this? He does that so we can immediately begin to claim our inheritance and enjoy our spiritual wealth. A baby cannot legally use his inheritance. Only an adult son can and should. And then he says, this means that you don't have to wait until you're an old saint before you can claim your riches in Christ. You can begin to claim it the moment you become a Christian. That's what he's saying. Now, that's what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians. He said, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different than a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He says, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. So also, when we were children, 
We were in slavery under the basic elements or principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God made you also an heir. And that's what he's talking about. He's basically saying, you have all that you need to be successful in the Christian life. As a matter of fact, your inheritance is what the Father gave the Son, Jesus. And I'm going to elaborate a little bit more on that because to me, this is the most exciting thing. You and I have all the rights and privileges of a son, but not just any son, the Son of God. You and I are standing at the same place with Jesus. John MacArthur says something really insignificant about adoption. He says, to be saved is to have the very life of God in our souls, his own spirit enlivening our spirits. Human parents can adopt children and come to love them every bit as much as they love their natural children. How many say that's true? It is true. They can give an adopted child complete equity or equality in the family life, resources, and inheritance, but no human parent can impart his own distinct nature to an adopted child. I remember pastoring in the United States. I was in, in Linwood, and we had a family in our church. And they adopted this little baby girl, like a couple weeks old, right? And all these other kids, they're all secure, wonderful Christian home, amazing kids, but the adopted child having all kinds of difficulties. And she got into so much trouble. And I, I'm, I'm dealing with this family now, and the parents are crying, and the adopted child has caused so much grief. She's in juvenile you know, the juvenile delinquency system. And one day, while she's in the juvenile delinquency system, one of the women who were overseeing the system goes, she looks at her and she says, you look just like your mom. She goes, no, I don't. No, your biological mom. I knew your biological mom. She was in juvie as well as you. As a matter of fact, your mannerisms are like her, you look like her, you talk like her, you even act like her. Now, her biological mom gave her up when she was a week or two old, or week old. Very little limited contact in her life. And yet, isn't it amazing? And so there's been this whole discussion going on now in the social sciences, how much does biology versus nurture have upon people's lives? And obviously, in that case, you could say, wow, biology certainly had a lot to do with it because everything that she was learning in the one realm was so unlike what she was behaving like in this realm. As a matter of fact, her mother was a prostitute and was killed in the Green River murders. Really interesting story. So, why am I saying all of that? Because as much as you want your nature to be stamped into the life of the child, it doesn't work that way. That's what I'm telling you. But listen to this. Yet, that is exactly what God miraculously does to every person whom he has elected, who has trusted in Christ. He makes them sons and daughters just like his divine son. You and I have been given the very nature of Christ. And Peter says that. You have been given this divine nature. Now add to this nature these things. So there's a responsibility that actually comes with privilege. Children not only have all of the son's riches and blessings, 
but of the Son's nature. So I've already said this. Privilege and responsibility. For every privilege you have, there's a corresponding responsibility. How many have heard of the Victorian era? You've heard of that, the Victorian era. Is that a, you've heard of that? Where did that come from? Great Britain. Why did it come? Because at that moment in Great Britain's history, she was the master of the world. And who was the monarch in the Victorian era? Queen Victoria, the obvious answer, you know. But you know about Queen Victoria. When she was a little girl, she was being tutored. And as they were tutoring her, they were showing her the lineage of the kings of England. And she had an epiphany. As they were going down, she realized she was next in line in the throne. And she realized she was going to become the queen of England. You know what she said? She says, I'm going to have to be a very good person. Because she understood that she had a very great calling and responsibility. She took this seriously. And because of that, Queen Victoria was a very good queen. And and actually, the nation prospered under her leadership. Now, I like the story that Craig Barnes, he's a minister, tells. He said, when my mom and dad were raising us, my dad was a pastor as well. So he grew up in a pastor's home. And he said, one day they brought Roger home. Roger was 12 years old. And he was a young person that had grown up in a home where both his mom and dad were drug addicts and they had both overdosed and Roger had nobody. And so my mom and dad brought him home and they adopted Roger. They took him in. They raised Roger. Now how many know uh, that was going to be an interesting moment? Because Roger now had to adjust to a new environment. Because you can imagine in, a, in an addicted home, there were no rules, everything went, and you know to survive, you had to stick up for yourself. I mean, it was a whole different environment. Now he's in this loving, nurturing environment. And at first he said it was difficult for Roger to adjust to his new home environment. Every day, several times a day, I hear my mom or dad saying to Roger, no, that's not how we behave in this family. No, Roger, you don't have to scream or fight or hurt other people to get what you want. No, Roger, we expect you to show respect in the family. And in time, Roger began to make adjustments to fit into his new environment. Now, did Roger have to make all of those changes in order to be a part of the family? No, he was brought in by the grace and the kindness and the goodness of Craig's mom and dad. But did he have to do a lot of hard work because he was in the family? And the answer was absolutely. It was challenging to have to make the changes because he had had to unlearn and relearn certain behaviors. Do you and I have a lot of hard work to do now that the Spirit has adopted us into God's family? Well, the answer is yes, of course. Certainly. But not in order to become a son or daughter of the Heavenly Father. No, You make these changes because you are a son and a daughter. You see the difference. So then why does God adopt us? Well, we've already touched on this. Because he has a purpose in mind. But one of the purposes, you're going to love this, is to reveal his nature. But God, who is rich in love, what does he do? He forgives us. But God, who is full of grace, he's going to reveal the nature of his personhood and his grace. But how does he do that? He has to show that to an object, to a person. And so now in all of eternity, all of the angelic hosts 
are watching as God takes us rebels and changes us and showers us with his grace so that we're transformed and they're just scratching their heads going, this is so amazing how you can take a bunch of rebels like us and transform us and make us people like God. Do you know that we are in all of eternity the greatest expression of God's grace? We are. And all the angels are rejoicing over the goodness of God and the grace of God and the love of God in how he's demonstrating these things to us, his children. Well, listen to what the Father says about Jesus. And I think you and I need to know something. Now that we're Christians, Paul uses this term, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And he makes that interchange over and over again. You keep reading your Bible, it says, you are in Christ, Christ is in you. How many times have you seen it reading through your Bible? You are in Christ, Christ is in you. Now, how does the Father see the Son? Well, there's an episode. I love this story. It's in the baptism. Jesus had, was going to get baptized by John the Baptist. Remember that story? Matthew tells it, Luke tells it. And so Jesus shows up and John goes, hey, wait a minute. You should be baptizing me, you know, because he recognizes this is, you know, the Messiah. And uh, Jesus says, no, 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 just do this. This is important. We're going to demonstrate something to people. I want this to be an example. I want to be an example. So while John is baptizing him, the Spirit of God, the Bible says, comes upon Jesus. Because first of all, it says, as Jesus, as they were praying, heaven's open, Spirit came down in the form of a dove. So it wasn't a dove. It was the Spirit of God. And Jesus is now full of the Spirit as he's coming up out of the water. What a powerful moment, right? And then John sees this, and then he hears the voice of the Father. And this is what he hears. It's so powerful. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now i got to ask the question, what had Jesus accomplished or did before the baptism what did he do he had done nothing he was 30 years old he there was you know don't listen to all these ideas of jesus performing miracles as a kid that's bogus that never happened jesus did not perform one miracle until the spirit of god came on him jesus though he lived a sinless life he had done nothing And the father is looking at him and he says what to him? He says, you're my son. I'm pleased with you. And so you and I need to understand something. God is not pleased with us because of the things we're doing. God is pleased with us because we're his kids. Are we, you got to let that thing wrap. It's, it's got to get into your innermost being. God loves me and is pleased with me just because I'm his kid. That's powerful. Now, once you get that inside of you, then you can get into the wilderness, like the wilderness of life, and Satan comes along, he's going to tempt Jesus. He says, if you're the son of God, turn these loaves, these stones into loaves of bread. Jesus said, hey, listen, I'm secure. I don't need to prove to anybody who I am. I know who I am. I know I am the son of God because the father had already affirmed him. He didn't have to go out and do a bunch of things to receive affirmation. And a lot of us as Christians, we're running around seeking the Father's affirmation. And I'm declaring to you today, you already have it. 
Once you understand that, then you are secure. And when you're secure as a person, you behave differently than when you're insecure. How many say that is the truth? How many stupid things have we done to try to find affirmation from other people? And I'm telling you today, you don't need it. You've already got it. The Father already is pleased with you and loves you. And out of that security, your life begins to flow. It's a lot easier to do the right things when you don't have to prove anything to anybody. It's a lot more liberating. I like that. The Father loves us because He sees Christ in us. He loves us because we have His nature. He chooses to love us. And when we realize that our Father loves us, we become secure and we live in the strength of that glorious provision. It sets us free. It's liberating. Right? You don't have to run around trying to be loved by somebody because you already know you're loved. Now, I want to close with the story to really bring this home. I love this story. King David, before he was the king, he went out and he slew a giant. How many know the story of David killing a giant? Anybody heard that story? David kills this giant. He's a shepherd boy. And at that moment, the Bible says, Jonathan, who was the crown prince, he was next in line. Saul was the king. Jonathan's the crown prince. The Bible says Jonathan at that moment loved David. In other words, this is not an unhealthy thing. This is like Jonathan just really, there was something about David, his courage, his faith. You know, there's some people you're just attracted to. Jonathan just thought, I love this guy. He's brave. You know, he, he rescued our nation, you know, and they became the best of friends. I would say David and Jonathan are an example of two people that are good friends. When David was discouraged in the wilderness, Jonathan came and says, listen, David, you know, I know I'm supposed to be next in line to be the king, but I already know God's chosen you. Remember, go back to choices. God chose you for that purpose, David. I already know that. And in the ancient world, when you had legitimate contenders to the throne, many times these people were killed after somebody secured the throne. How many know that's true? They would do that because they would feel insecure in their legitimate claim to the throne. But Jonathan says, hey, you don't need to kill me. I am happy to serve you, David, for the rest of my life. I know that you're God's anointed. I know you're God's choice to be the king. And they made a covenant. Now, it's interesting There's a word that is used in the Old Testament. It says Jonathan loved David. They made this covenant. And there's a word in the Hebrew, it's hased. And we would spell it in English, H-E-S-E-D, hased. But what I like about this word is that this word, there's no English equivalency to the idea of hased. So when that word shows up in the Old Testament, here's how translators handle it. They put down God's has said, they put God's loving kindnesses. Or they'll put down God's unfailing love or God's covenant love. They're trying to give us some idea as to the meaning of the word has said. There's the idea that there's a love here that's bound up in a covenant relationship. There's, there's, it's so binding that, you know what, when you're in this has said relationship, and they've done studies on this, that you are contractually committed to doing what you said you're going to do. It's powerful. Now, Jonathan goes out with his dad, and they're both killed on Mount Gilboa. David eventually becomes the king, not only of the southern tribes, but of all the tribes, unites the kingdom. 
And when David's kingdom is established, he's looking around and he said, can I do anything for my friend Jonathan? Is there anyone I can bless? Because I know he's gone, but there must be something I can do to fulfill my hased, my love for Jonathan. And his servant said, oh yeah, there's a, there's, you know, Jonathan had a son and when he was a little boy, there was a threat on his life and she picked him up and raced out and dropped him. And as a result, he became a cripple. And he's crippled and he's got nothing going on in his life. Matter of fact, he lives in a place that's called Lodabar. Lodabar You know, the Hebrew people like pictures, words. Lodabar means the barren place. And so here's Mephibosheth. And this story is found, you can read it this afternoon, 2 Samuel chapter 9, 1 through 12. Mephibosheth is now living in Lodabar, a barren place, and he's a crippled person. And you know, how many could honestly see in his life, he could literally be a bit of an embittered person. Because think about it, he was part of a royal lineage, He should have been in the royal family. He should have been eating at the king's table. But now he's living in a barren place and he's a crippled person and he didn't do it to himself. Somebody did it to him. He could have been a very bitter young person. That could have been his condition. But watch what happens. David says, bring him to me. And when uh, Mephibosheth shows up, he's scared out of his mind because he thinks, "Uh uh-oh, you know, I'm part of this royal lineage that David could eliminate so there'd be no any contenders to the throne. But that's not what David wants to do. David's not going to kill him. David wants to show said this covenant love. And so what does he do? He said, Mephibosheth, he says, I want you to be at the king's table. And Mephibosheth, everything that you lost, everything that your family lost, everything that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, everything that once belonged to your dad Jonathan, I'm giving it all to you. Wow, is that amazing? How many of you like this story? I mean, so now I've got to ask the question, what did Mephibosheth do to deserve to move from Lodabar to the king's table in Jerusalem and to be taken care of for the rest of his life and given all of these beautiful inheritances? What did he do to deserve it? Nothing. Nothing. But because of his father and what his father had done with David and had created this sad relationship, He was now blessed. Can I tell you right now, because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and I, we've been taken from our spiritual Lodabar and brought to the Father's house to sit at the King's table and all of that inheritance is given to us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Wow. Hallelujah. That is amazing to me. Let's stand this morning. I love that story. I even have goosebumps right now thinking about it. I just, I was so overwhelmed with that incredible story this morning. But some of you in this room, you know what? You are in a place in your life, you go, Pastor, you know, I have to confess, I've struggled with really feeling this issue of worth before Almighty God. I've struggled with self-worth issues. You know, with every head bowed right now, I want to just pray with you. This is important. I have struggled with self-worth issues. I have struggled with sin issues. I've struggled with my sense of being secure in the Father's love. I've struggled with these things. I want you to be really honest. Just raise your hand. That's you. God's speaking to you right now. You have struggled. You have struggled with these things. But this morning you have heard that it's not determined on you. Jesus did it for you. 
The Father has reached out. He has chosen you. And you are now blessed. You are now pleasing to the Father. You don't have to do anything to please Him. You already are pleasing to Him. And it's out of that place, that place of affirmation, that you and I say, wow, what a... I am so privileged. I am now sitting at the king's table because of what my Savior, Jesus, has done for me. And with that great, beautiful privilege, it's so easy to move towards, I'm going to use this privileged state to be responsible in my Father's house. I'm going to live out the purposes of God for my life. And I will tell you, it will bring your heart great joy. It will bring your life great delight. You can rest now. You don't have to strive anymore. Striving is over. You are accepted because of what Jesus Christ did. You are in the Father's house. You are at the King's table. You have this amazing inheritance. You don't have to earn it. It's yours. And now what flows from that is, hey, I've got this amazing privilege. Now I'm going to live to reflect the honor that has been given to me by my Father. I'm just going to reflect it. People are going to know that I'm a child of the Most High God because I have His nature. And you know what? I'm not going to succumb to my sin nature. I'm going to say yes to God's nature. And I'm just going to let God's life flow through me. I'm going to let God's destiny flow through my life. I'm going to accomplish God's purposes for my life. Isn't that beautiful? So that's you today. Just lift our hands. Let's receive right now God's love for us and His grace in our hearts. And I've been praying, God, just make this so real so that all the insecurity will flee and that you will just be able to serve God out of who you know you are not trying to do something to please him. You don't have to please him. He's already pleased with you because he sees Christ in you. That's the expression of his grace to us. So Lord, I thank you this morning that you're doing a work in our hearts. You're making this real to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to see that we have been brought from Lodabar to the king's table. Help us to see that our inheritance has been restored. That which was lost in the garden of Eden has now been given to us. We are now eating from the tree of life. We are partakers of your life, Father, and your blessing and your goodness. We thank you for that. Now, Lord, help us, Lord, to reflect your image and to reflect your glory to all around us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave.